0: Well, let's open our Bibles to Romans chapter 1. We're only going to be looking at two verses today. Romans 1, 16 and 17. And while you're finding that, let me ask you a question. I trust you've had some time to interact with Romans. Don't you love it? I mean, uh, I just love Romans. It's... It's complex, it's easy, it's all the above. It's so relevant, though, because it reveals exactly what we're really like. It reveals precisely what we really need. And it provides for us the greatest news that we will ever, 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 ever hear. How God himself has made good on his ancient promises to the entire human race, gloriously giving us himself. And his awesome power. It's a power that rescues us. It's power that reconstructs our worldview, our view of reality. It's a power that transforms us, we'll find out in Romans 12, from the inside out. It's a power that reorients our lifestyles, and mainly, and gloriously, hello, we're not going to hell. It's a power that saves our souls. All of that. To a single letter, a letter written about 20 centuries ago by a single, he was not married at the time, single church planting Jew with a proven track record, but also with a reputation in some quarters of causing conflict and consternation because of his teaching. This letter addressed a troubled. Oh, it was about twenty-five-year-old local church at the time that was living life smack dab in the middle of a pagan, of the capital of a pagan dictatorship. A local church that had some problems that needed some solutions from a man most of them had never, ever, ever met, and a man who wanted to establish a local base there from which to continue the missionary work onto Spain that God had called him to do. Who was the man? Well, the Apostle Paul. The Apostle Paul at that time had been preaching the gospel for about 25 years. And he'd had tremendous success. He had planted or was responsible for the planting of multiple churches over much of the northeastern, okay, time for a drink, northeastern Mediterranean part of the Roman Empire. He had had tremendous success. Coupled with tremendous problems. Opposition, misunderstanding, persecution, imprisonment, physical harm. Paul, as he's penning this letter, probably in Corinth in modern day Greece, Paul was probably in just a bit of a lull in his ministry right now because. ...ready to head to Jerusalem with this region-wide offering for the poor saints living there. So, he takes up the dilemmas of this church in Rome. He's looking to establish some relationship with him. He's looking to rescue his reputation and teaching from the misunderstandings and misconceptions that always preceded him into a city. And he was looking to apply the wealth of revelation, knowledge, and experience that he had gained from the Lord to the problems plaguing their specific local church. And the church in Rome? Oh my, it was in the capital of the empire, a commercial and a cosmopolitan city without rival, where a multitude of religions and just straight-up rank paganism freely mingled all the time with politics and business and colonial expansion through military conquest. Welcome to Rome. The Roman church had probably been founded, again, roughly 25 years before, by Jews who were probably at Pentecost in Jerusalem. Remember, as, Acts walked, as Al walked you guys through Acts, right there at Pentecost, there were Jews from Rome. We don't know for sure, but probably they headed back home, and off they started with the church. It was great. It was going pretty well. These Jews who had believed in Jesus Christ, they branched bring their newfound faith with them, and it was going well for about 16 years. And then this enormous Jewish population with a minority report Christian population, an emperor who was named Claudius at the time, he had heard about this guy named Crestus, probably Christ, and they were squabbling so much, the Jews of the city, that he ordered them all out in one fell swoop. So about 16 years into the church, And all of a sudden, it goes from predominantly Jewish-led, Jewish everything, customs, cultures, Jewish Christians, to the Gentiles. All the Jews leave overnight. And now they're standing there with Gentile leaders and a Gentile population in the churches. Some would say that there were about 13 house churches in Rome at the time. And so there they were. What do we do? It happened out of the clear blue. Fast forward a few years later, the Jews are back. And now the problems have begun. Oh, they love each other. They certainly love each other. But now they're starting to figure out, what do we do with these old customs? What do we do with these perceptions? How do we handle the old covenant? What do we do with the Mosaic law? How about food? What about wine? What about this? What about that? That is what Paul is speaking into. So it's about eight years later. The Jews are back in town, and now it's a new emperor. One most of us know the name, Nero. Nero's the emperor. And the whole vibe and the culture of the church, and by the way, the city, had changed. Now, they loved one another, but there were tensions present that needed Paul's careful teaching. So what does he do? He writes. He writes to let them know that just as soon as he completes his Jerusalem journey, he hopes to serve them in person. And then in the letter, he offers some solutions to their current problems. And he clearly explains the gospel. And he connects this new gospel. He connects the gospel to the ancient biblical Judaism that they all knew. And he enlists their support for his missionary venture into Spain. Whew. That's the background in a nutshell. Now, before we mine this particular treasure of these two verses, please join me in prayer. We've got a lot to accomplish in a short amount of time. This is one of those thinking cap sermons. So, let's pray. Lord, help us. Help me. Lord, We have so much in common with Rome where we live today. But Lord, even if we didn't, we have so much in common with every individual Roman Christian. Your word is as relevant to us as it was to them. We have the same needs. We have the same issues. Lord, we have the same God. We have the same hope. We have the same gospel. Because Jesus Christ who died and was buried and resurrected for them did that for us too. Lord, help us to grasp what the text is saying in their language, in their situation, at their time frame. This is a letter. It's not an encyclopedia. Help us to grasp what it was for them so we can bring it into our hearts and our lives 20 centuries later because it's just as relevant, just as powerful, and just as much the infallible, and errant. Word of God. Thank you for your word. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Our little text today is kind of like a hinge. You can think of it as a hinge. Part of it looks back to the introductory part of the letter. The other part, the majority of it, presses forward and it reveals the main theme, the focus of the letter. And what's that focus? What's that theme? We could sum it up in two words. The gospel. The letter of to so the Romans is about the gospel. We're going to discover as we march through this for the next year that Paul's going to rehearse, he's going to rescue, he's going to explain and apply the gospel through the remainder of this correspondence. He's going to focus on the way the gospel transforms individual sinners into saints and incorporates them and to the people of God. He's going to show them the glory and the beauty of the gospel of God, the good news about the life, the death, and resurrection of God's Son, Jesus Christ, while it double-tasks addressing their issues revolving around their past ethnicity and practice. So why in the world, then, do we call this series, Romans, the power of God? If it's about the gospel Why is a series entitled that? Well, there's a reason for that. One of them is because the gospel, excuse me, because Paul in Romans focuses on the way the gospel does its work, how it gets the job done, how in the gospel the saving power of God is revealed to humanity. So that's why we call it the power of God. It's about the But in the gospel is the power of God for us, to us, in us, through us, revealed. So let's jump into our little text. I happen to be reading out of the ESV. If you join with me, let's. We're going to do the bobblehead again. So you're going to be looking down at the text a lot. Just keep your finger right there. For I am not ashamed of the gospel for it's the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first, and also to the Greek, for in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith, for faith, as it's written, the righteous shall live by faith. Now this is a a thick verse, and what we're going to do, if you Through the next, throw the slide up. We're going to just walk through. It's going to stay up the whole time. You don't have to be in a rush to copy it. What I want to show you is there's some structure in how he takes these two little verses and there's a method to his madness, so to speak. Paul is eager to preach the gospel in Rome. That's what we just learned about last week. Why? Why? Because he's not ashamed ashamed of the gospel. Why? Because the gospel is the saving power of God. For all who believe. Why? Because this saving righteousness of God is being revealed in the gospel and experienced by faith. And this experience by faith is in agreement with the Old Testament, which says the righteous will live, they'll experience eternal life by faith. So, let's, we're just going to leave that up there and let's go to point one in our heads. Number one, Paul is eager to preach the gospel in Rome. Why? Because he's not ashamed of the gospel. If you're taking notes, stop for just a second because you need to check out the text. So, he's not ashamed of the gospel. Why? Let's look down. His first verse of that verse, of this little thing. For I am not ashamed of The gospel. In verses 13 through 15, we encounter Paul's desire to preach the gospel in Rome. Paul's not ambitious in a sinful sense. No, he's aware that he's been called by God to be the apostle to the Gentiles. And Paul loves his people, the Jews. So, Paul is eager to publicly proclaim the gospel to the unbelievers in the city of Rome. And to remind and apply that same gospel to the believers in the church as well. Twofold proclamation, remind, application. He's not ashamed to proclaim a gospel <laughs> that is utter foolishness to the Gentiles. Does that sound like you at work? Utter foolishness to all your coworkers. Or that is a self-evident contradiction to the Jews. Let me explain. To proclaim Christ's resurrection from the dead was an intellectual absurdity in the thinking of that culture. And it contradicted the various religions present in the city of that day. But what about the Jews? Oh my! A crucified Messiah! That's not Possible. Because the Old Testament was clear. If you were hanged on a tree, you were cursed by God. Messiah, cursed by God? I don't think so. A contradiction. Oh, and imagine Paul going in. Not only is he doing all this intellectual absurdity, a contradiction to the Jews. Every single temple he's coming against in the capital. Oh, there's more. <laughs> He was preaching that an executed criminal from a despised and rebellious race in an obscure corner of the Roman Empire was purposely crucified by the Roman government for claiming to be a king. And that's what he's preaching in the Roman capital. Hello, Caesar ruled the world, Nero was Lord. And Paul says, I don't think so. Paul was well aware of what the gospel would cost him. He had been through considerable suffering, hardship, censure, slander, gossip, rejection, beatings, and imprisonment already. He'd witnessed a riot. He'd been on the open sea. Paul knew what it would cost him. Being ashamed in his day and in that place was much different than the shame most of us face. As a matter of fact, in the New Testament, in in Mark and in 2 Timothy, for example, when it talks about unashamed, I'm unashamed of the gospel, I'm unashamed of Christ, it's talking about the context of suffering and death. So when Paul says, I'm unashamed of the gospel, why is he going to preach? Because he's unashamed of the gospel. Now, why would he be unashamed of the gospel Look at the next point. Why is he unashamed of that gospel? Because that gospel is the saving power of God for all who believe. Look down at our text. We get that right out of here. For it's the power, the gospel is the power of God for salvation. Now, how do you use salvation and save? When's the last time you said, hey, I was just with somebody the other day and I said, tell me when you got saved. Tell me about your salvation. That's how we typically use it, isn't it? We think of it in terms of born again. Legit. Good. That's what we do. But you know what? It's much, much wider and larger than that. Saved. Salvation. You can almost think of them as synonyms. It's about being saved from the... Wrath of God, being set free from the dominion of the devil, from the power and penalty of sin, from death, from eternal separation from God. It's about not going to hell. Salvation is about not experiencing the second death and being eternally tormented in the lake of fire. Salvation's huge. Oh, it doesn't stop there. Salvation involves converting the sinner to a saint making him or her a follower of Christ instead of a rebel, a friend instead of an enemy. It makes true and rich fellowship, what we just experienced, communion possible with God. It transforms salvation, rescues, reorients, reconstructs. It gives life. It keeps the believer safe and secure from every worldly and satanic threat. It's a big word here's the one I like the best. Based on this, salvation provides the power to bring one back from spiritual death and then bestow eternal life. So you could legitimately say, you're saved, past tense. You're being saved in this life. And one day you will be finally and fully saved. Actually, in the original language of this particular verse, That's what Paul is pointing to. Final and full salvation in the future. He's not ignoring the others, but right here, final and full salvation in the future. When Jesus returns, oh, golly, we'll be saved. We'll no longer experience the effect of sin, we'll no longer experience the effects of evil. And as nice as that is, hello, we'll never, ever experience the condemnation of the wicked. Because Jesus is going to return to judge sinful humanity and angels. Saved? Oh, I'm saved from what? From hell. The power of God To affect our salvation is available, look down in the text, to everyone who believes. Paul's words like salvation for believe and faith are basically the same. And they too are bigger, they're larger than how we typically use them. Believe, faith, trust, think of it as the opposite of doubt. Also think of it as a settled conviction that Jesus is Lord and the gospel is true. True. Does it involve mental assent? Do you agree? Yeah, duh, I get that. Yes, it does involve that. But it's not just that. As a matter of fact, Paul's going to trot out Abraham as exhibit 101 on what does belief look like and the type of belief that is counted as righteousness that results in salvation, the power of God. Abraham's a prime example in Romans. He understood. He agreed. He had mental assent. But he acted. And his belief... Resulted in obedience. It resulted in trust. See, it's much larger. Obedience, trust, and significant risk. Remember, Abraham staked everything on the word of God, the promise of God. Abraham believed. Salvation? God's powerful gift in the gospel. The gospel is effective for salvation. But, it's not automatically bestowed. You've got to believe in the capital B sense of belief. And by the way, salvation is for another. Paul, Paul, what Paul's doing is it's, he's, he's at this transition. The hinge is swinging. He's looking ahead, and he's just throwing out little seeds. And they're going to grow into great big plants further in Romans. You can, you can trace everything in the rest of the book in these two verses. So he's talking about faith, and he's talking about belief, and he's talking about salvation, he's talking about power. And now he says, by the way, all. It's for everyone. And he's going to throw out the word all. And there's reasons for that. To the Jew first, sorry, in your text. To the Jew first, and also to the Greek. Now, he threw out a seed, but he's multitasking. He's now going to address one of their primary problems in the church. He begins the process of applying the gospel to a problem in their local church, one you probably knew about, I'm sure. The Jews, the ethnic Jews of that day, divided the entire world into two parts. Jews and everybody else. And by the way, that was legit. We do the same. The Bible does the same now for Christians. Unbelievers and believers. There's no middle ground. So for a Jew, you you were either a Jew. Or you were someone else. And those terms are kind of synonyms for this someone else. They were different words you'll find in the New Testament as they're describing what Jews thought. Um, It's the same concept. It can be the nations. It can be the Gentiles. It can be, as we find here, the Greeks. Why? Because in the first century, if you weren't a Jew, Jews just thought the entire inhabited world as they knew it. Everybody spoke Greek, either as their first or second or third language. So it was like the English or several generations ago, the French of the day. Everybody spoke Greek, so they were just all Jews and Greeks. Or the nations, or the Gentiles. Now later on, Paul's going to make clear the fact that the gospel is the fulfillment of the promises of God to one specific and important Jew. Abraham. Abraham. And then to the nation of Israel. Actually, we could trace it all the way back to God's promise to Eve. He will apply this gospel that has its roots in ancient Judaism. It's the same story of the Bible now, coming to Rome. He'll apply that gospel to some thorny problems the church was facing. We can't get into that, but the majority of the problems they were facing where he ends the letter with, accept one another in the Lord as Christ has accepted you. He's talking to these two people groups that are all Christians. But two different ethnicities in this, in this mass two part. This, this multiple ethnicity going on. So, Paul is eager to preach the gospel. Why? Because he's not ashamed of the gospel. Why? Because the gospel is the saving power, here's our title, of God. It's the power of God. For all, not just the Jews, all who believe. Why? Because this saving righteousness of God, now the word changes a little bit, this saving righteousness of God is being revealed. How? In the gospel. It's being revealed in the gospel. That's why he wants to preach the gospel. The saving righteousness of God is being revealed in the gospel. And check this out. Here's how it comes to you. It's experienced. By faith. Check out the next verse. For in, the righteous, for in it, the gospel, in it the righteousness of God is revealed. The righteousness of God is revealed in the gospel via, and I've just trotted out three, three ways just to help us get a handle on this. How does this righteousness of God, it's God's own righteousness, how is it revealed in the gospel? It's revealed through information. The gospel reveals what God has done in Christ. And then when we believe this information, this truth, we believe the gospel, a declaration, information, declaration is made. We receive from God an amazing gift, righteousness from God. God declares us not guilty. We're guilty like in a court of law. He declares us not guilty because the punishment went on his son. He's just, but he also justifies, declares not guilty just as if I'd never sinned. I have sinned, and I've been declared now not guilty by God. Our sins are forgiven because of the death of Christ. We are declared righteous, not guilty, righteous, forgiven. And then Christ's righteousness is imputed. It's credited to us. All the righteousness and all the merit from how he lived his perfect life is now given it's not intrinsic in me it's foreign to me but now you know what it's been given to me remember that robe of righteousness you read about Think in terms of that. But that's not all. Information, declaration, now transformation also occurs. God's gracious gift is a powerful gift. Just as in the Old Testament, when you find the righteousness of God in the Old Testament, there are many times this faithful God is powerfully active, and that's a synonym. That's the meaning for the righteousness of God. The righteousness of God many times referred to as saving activity on behalf of His people. What does that mean? He does stuff for them. And he does stuff to them. He's active. It's not just a declaration. He messes with us. And messes on our behalf. Think of this righteousness of God as a coin. A coin given to you by God himself. One gift. Two sides. And this gift, this coin, is delivered to you as you believe by faith. It's delivered to you as you receive it. It's delivered to you. In the gospel, on one side of the coin is a powerful declaration of righteousness. One in which sinners are declared righteous on the basis of Christ's atoning death. That's one side. The other side of the coin is a powerful activity. One in which those who have been declared righteous, those sinners now become, and by the way, are saints. They're found to be transformed by the powerful gift of righteousness it's a declaration but it also gets stuff done it's a transformation this powerful gospel reveals the righteousness of god grace that declares us righteous and grace that makes us saints we are sanctified by and sanctified in christ jesus and how does that come? Back to your text. From faith to faith. This righteousness comes to us by the gospel as it's believed. Literally, the, the Greek, by faith from first to last. Paul again makes clear that it's only those who believe. And all those who would believe, those only who would believe, will experience the revelation of the gift of God's righteousness. This faith is simply a humble acceptance of what God has offered as a gift. So Paul is eager to preach the gospel in Rome. Why? Because he's not ashamed of the gospel. Why is he not ashamed of the gospel? Because the gospel is the saving power of God for all who believe. Why is that? Because this saving righteousness of God is being revealed. This coin is being revealed and experienced by faith. And this statement rings true in the Old Testament. It's in agreement with the Old Testament which says the righteous will live. Not exist. They will inherit. They will receive. They will be imputed. Eternal life. How? By faith. As it is written. Check down in your text. As it is written, the righteous shall live By faith. Paul completes this section by reiterating the importance of faith. And the way he does it is he quotes Habakkuk, an Old Testament prophet. Habakkuk, as our example here, was faced with a prospect of certain calamity and catastrophe that was coming to Israel. He had a choice. Was he going to turn to himself or pagan gods for security or to other nations for security or was he going to trust the covenant making, covenant keeping God? Well, Habakkuk did trust and he trusted in the Lord. And Paul uses him as an example of what faith looks like. Faith gives you life. It's just another way to say what he's been saying using an Old Testament prophet. But this time, instead of physical life, You inherit, you're given life from another age that's jumping into this life, eternal life. Now, it's powerfully given to the person who's been declared righteous, who's been transformed by believing the gospel. Abrupt ending, we're done. Now, wait a minute, Jim. Where's this going? What's the reason for all this? Well, we went over the history because we wanted you to read it as a letter that was addressed to another audience that's jumping 20 centuries more. Got to teach you to read your Bible. You already know, just reminding you. You can't read it like a 21st century person. You've got to, you've got to think through and say, I wonder what that meant to them. Because then it starts this, the letter starts to make better sense. And of course, we need it to make as much sense as we can because it's the word of God and it changes our lives and reconstructs everything in our thinking and changes our behavior. It's God's word. What else do we need to do? We need to see that that Paul has begun this little teeny piece. He's looked backwards. He said, hey, listen, I want to come to Rome and I want to preach, and I'm going to preach this gospel. But let me tell you what, I've also got some other things I want to accomplish. I've heard, you guys have talked, I've I've heard about you, it's been reported to me. I know you've got some problems in the church. And I've got this thing that's going on everywhere I go, and I want to come help you. I want to preach the gospel to everyone in Rome because it's the power of God for salvation for all those stinking pagans and Romans. If they'll in Rome, if they'll believe, God will save them too. And by the way, Jews and Gentiles in this church that's got this tension going on, listen, let me tell you what. The gospel can help you, too. First of all, you got to remember it, and then you got to apply it and all that means. And I'm going to help you sort that out in this book to show you how it's connected to Adam and Eve and to Abraham and to Moses. But there's some radical things. There's continuity, but no, there's radical things different. And you guys need to get along by applying the gospel to your discussions about things like food and drink and days and new moons and activities and Sabbaths. It's causing unnecessary. Understandable, it's a new era. Jew and Gentile, what do we do? Unnecessary, though. Friction in the church. And we've got to be one. Because the same God has saved us. If he's accepted us, you accept one another. That's a snapshot of how to apply the gospel right then. If he's accepted us, gospel 101, application, you accept one another. If you're a disciple of Christ, if you're like Jesus, be like Jesus, accept one another. Stop being self-righteous. He accepted you. We're going to find that again and again and again and again and again in Romans. Now, this is a church. It's not a seminar. Jim, I felt like I was drinking out of a fire hose. Slow down. I can only imagine Gabby right now trying to translate. Slow down. No, 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 no. I just wanted you to do a flyby. So it whets your appetite to read this week. It shows you that the structure matters. It's a church. We're going to take almost the next year to really do nothing but trot out all the explanations of those points. There's the whole book of Romans. And that's what we're going to spend the next year doing and how that applies to us. Great, Jim. That's the whole next year. Now what do I do? I got one minute remaining. What do I do? Here it is. You ready? It should blow your mind. Not just because you're drinking data out of a fire hose. No. It should blow your mind. Why? Why? All this righteousness and all this salvation, all this declaration and all these things that I'm justified and all these things that I'm forgiven and all these things that I've been given, imputed the righteousness of Christ when I had none of my own. All these things that happened to me about salvation and what it meant now I'm not going to hell. And I'm also saved from sin and I'm saved from death and death no longer has dominion over me. Where's your sting? What's the big deal? Therefore, there's now no condemnation. I'm not going to receive the condemnation of Christ when he returns and condemns all the sinning people in the world and the angels. It's not, I don't feel good. No, you're not going to hell. That's what that verse means. Who Who will deliver me from? Oh, golly, I do all these things I don't want to do. And it's, oh, who will deliver me? Hello, salvation, big word. Christ, Jesus will deliver me. Look at all he's done. It should blow our minds. Salvation is a word that fills this room and then some. It's a small world that a word that trots out these ginormous concepts that tell you God loves you. God is powerful. By the way, it's not just about you and God. God has incorporated you into a people. And yes, they're the church triumphant now in heaven. They're the church militant, the entire um, church in the world today. But for us, it's the people sitting in this room primarily. And we're going to learn how to apply the gospel to folks that you may or may not really care about in this room. (laughs) I know that doesn't occur here, but, you know, other places I've been... So it should blow your mind. It should remind you of a just and loving and merciful and powerful God. And that should put a smile of joy on your face. And a tear of gratitude in your eye. And what it really should do is make you fall in love with Jesus. Because remember the first sermon I preached? What's the gospel? It's not a concept. It's not the word of the month. It's the good news about a person his name is Jesus Christ it should produce gratitude and love and a sense of security and then the last thing it ought to do it should produce faith faith to proclaim to not be ashamed are you one of the people in this room that's just like whatever about evangelism I'll stand on line behind me. You ever have do you have people in your life? I do. You just eh. Ah, God can't get them. The gospel is not powerful enough. Well, maybe faiths proclaim this powerful gospel and watch God powerfully work in your friends, your families, and your neighbors. Just like he did in you. you. You understand that somebody thought you were the impossible case. Yeah. And you understand as we apply the gospel to our personal relationships, I, I know this is, you know those people in the room that have eccentricities? And folks that you just really don't care for? You, you, you really don't care for? You know what? <laughs> You're one of them to somebody else. Everybody's got somebody here go. And you know what? What you don't know is everybody in here is looking at you going. The gospel is powerful. It saved our soul. It can transform and reconstruct our mind. And it will reorient our behavior. It will make us fall in love with the person, Jesus Christ, who loves you. And died for you. Let's pray. Well, Lord, it's a lot of text in a short amount of time. Your word is powerful, powerful to save. It saved me. Lord, your word is powerful. Powerful to transform. I am different than I used to be. And Lord, your gospel is powerful. I'm going to heaven. I will not face the condemnation that I deserve because I've put my trust, my faith, my belief in you. It's available to all. Help us to proclaim it. Help us to have faith for ourselves, Lord. Not faith in ourselves. Faith in your power to transform us and to continue to transform us. And Lord, I pray specifically for the folks in the room that are nervous. Will I make it? Oh, Lord. Sin will have no dominion over you, Paul says in the same letter. It's a promise. The gospel is powerful to transform us, and to keep us. And Lord, may this powerful gospel go with us now as we leave, and go into us, go with us into our communities, proclaiming it. In the name of Jesus, amen. Amen. You are dismissed.